Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you've inspired it, how, as we talked about in Sunday school, you've preserved your word, Lord, for thousands of years, your revelation to us, your message from us. You could have just left us on our own. You could have just left us without any knowledge of truth, but you gave us your word, Lord. So, God, as we study your word this morning, may we be faithful to study it, understand it well. May we be faithful to apply it to our lives, especially as we consider this King Jesus. And God, we know that it's all about him. May we be forgiven for every time we think it's about us. So God, may you be blessed and honored in this preaching time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. My senior year of high school, I went on senior trip to the Wilds Christian Camp in North Carolina. It was a tradition that our school did. We always went to this Christian camp. They had a giant whitewater rafting trip that the camp did every year. And so my friends and I went on the trip. There were about 40 different rafts. The problem was they didn't have enough guides for each raft. You were supposed to have a staff guide to sit in the back, and they steer and turn and things like that. And they know the river, and they've got a lot of rafting experience. And we were the only boat that didn't have a guide because our teachers told the staff there that my best friend Logan was mature enough, was competent enough, and was able enough to be the guide for our raft. Now, the only problem with that is that Logan had never been on that river before, and Logan had actually never been whitewater rafting before in his entire life. And so we got onto the water with him. We were all very confident that Logan could do well. Logan was not confident that he could do well. And you know, we did okay. We kind of ran into the other rafts for a little bit, but we ended up doing fine until we hit this drop-off point where we went over this ledge and the raft would drop into like the next zone. And when we hit that drop-off point, everybody fell out of the raft except for Logan and myself. I kind of nuzzled in there between two of the seats and we were left inside of the raft. Now, the only problem with this was that that was when they took the pictures. You got a picture for each trip. That's when they took the picture. So the first picture that they took is us like bracing for impact. The second picture, half of the people were out of the raft. And then the third people or the third picture that they took was of Logan and I in the raft. His girlfriend was crying and she was hanging on to the side and everyone else was scattered around in the water. Logan did not have the right background to be our rafting guide. And I never let him forget that story because I think it's very funny. We all want people that are qualified for the jobs that they say they are, right? If you've got a plumber, you want him to have some experience plumbing, to know what he's doing. If you have a teacher, you want them to teach your kids what they should learn. You want them to have background in their subject matter. You want your doctor, your surgeon, to know what they're doing, right, before you go in for surgery. You want to have some confidence that this isn't their first time around, but that they've got the education and the experience to do the surgery Well, well, our text today compares Christ, the king, to all the other earthly kings, especially of the nation of Israel. And what it really shows us is that Christ is the only one who has the background, who has the leadership, and who has the character to lead Israel well. If you read the book of 1 Samuel, when Israel wanted a king, they go to Samuel and they say, we need a king like the other nations do. Samuel said, be careful. He's going to corrupt the land. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to send your sons into war. 
Then the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles prove that Samuel was right. There were some kings who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but they were very few and far between. And if you read those books carefully, you'll see that even they messed up, some of them in very big and significant ways. But there's many kings who didn't do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, who messed up, who really got Israel into trouble. And so reflecting on this, thinking of this, Micah writes Micah's chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And he tells us about a king who will come and lead the people of Israel well. And as we look at this text, we often think of the reference to Bethlehem, the virgin birth of Christ, the text that we think of around Christmas time, and we know the story of Christ well, his birth, his death, his resurrection, and his kingdom. But we often don't put ourselves into the minds of the people Micah was writing to. Imagine being a Jewish person at this time. All these other kings have messed up. All these other kings didn't get it right. And you hear about this promise of a king who would come and lead his people well. In our passage this morning, we examine the kingship of Christ. Jesus Christ is a better king. And as I mentioned last week, it's talking about Israel, but it applies to all of us as well. Christ is a better king for you. Christ is a better king for me. In fact, Christ is better than everything else we try to replace him with in life. Maybe you're here this morning and you need comfort. You've had a hard time. Maybe you need guidance. You've got a difficult decision to make. Maybe you just need a friend. Maybe you need leadership. Christ is better than all the things that we try to replace him with. And if you look at our world today, they try to replace Christ with about everything they can think of. But what I want us to see in this sermon this morning is that Christ is better than all worldly substitutes. And I hope you believe that this morning. Christ is better than all worldly substitutes. In our passage, we see why he's a better king. Why he's a better king than all the other kings of Israel. And we first of all, in verses 1 and 2, see his background. Look with me at his background. And he compares Christ from Bethlehem to this king from Jerusalem. Look at verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. The passage we looked at last week included three different scenes of Israel being saved from an enemy. And Micah sets us up to have another one of those experiences. Israel is in trouble. He's saying, muster your troops, gather your troops together. There's an invasion coming. There's an attack coming. I think this is probably the Assyrian army like we've been talking about coming to Israel. They were the big, bad power of the time. The king, I don't know if it's referring to any king necessarily, but just the king of Israel during that time. We know that later Zedekiah was king of Israel, and he actually was struck on the cheek by the king of Babylon. Some think it's a reference to Christ and his humiliation that he suffered here on earth, and that could be the case. But I think Micah is trying to set up this idea of a earthly, worldly king of Israel who's being humiliated 
He's not able to defend Israel from their enemies. Israel is under siege. We know that the Assyrians did siege Jerusalem during this time. If you look at the story of Hezekiah, Assyria had taken over Judah or Israel, all of it, and it had come all the way to the gates of Jerusalem to lay siege to Judah. They're facing this trying and tough time for this nation. So we see this king from Jerusalem getting his troops ready, trying to prepare for this enemy. Jerusalem was the capital city of Israel where everything happened. There's a lot of prophecy. There's a lot of statements made about Jerusalem. It's an important city. It was important to be part of Jerusalem. But in verse 2, we're not only going to see the king compared to Christ in verse 1. But we're also going to see the city of Jerusalem compared to the city of Bethlehem. Read verse 2 with me. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel. Micah in his book speaks much of the city of Jerusalem and its importance and its significance. He often calls it the daughter of Zion. I believe he's referring to Jerusalem when he says daughter of troops. <clears throat> but now we start seeing Micah speak of Bethlehem. Well, what do we know about Bethlehem? Again, put yourself in the minds and hearts of a Jewish person during that time. It was where David was from. Its name means house. In Greek, it means house of meat. In Hebrew, it means house of bread. Now, in your Bible, it might say Bethlehem Ephrata, like mine does. Ephrata was the ancient name for Bethlehem. It means to be fruitful. Putting Bethlehem Ephrata together would make the readers think of the ancient city of Bethlehem. The city of Ephrata was its original name. And that's where David was from. But Bethlehem wasn't a very significant city. It was five miles southwest of Jerusalem. And in comparison to Jerusalem, it kind of hid in its shadow. They wouldn't expect the king to come from Bethlehem. But yet now, in this prophecy, the Lord speaks to Bethlehem through Micah, who's writing this down. And he says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, who are too little among the clans of Judah, a clan would be like a tribe or a city in Judah. There are a lot of other cities that God could have chosen, but God chose Bethlehem. He took something insignificant and caused something very significant to happen there. What's going to happen? From you will come forth a ruler. There's going to be a king, there's going to be a ruler that would come from the city of Bethlehem. There are many other cities, like I said, that Christ could have came from, but God chose to use a city that was somewhat insignificant. And this is pretty fascinating, and we see this actually repeat in Scripture about our great God, that God chooses to use things that are insignificant to do something very significant. God chooses cities that aren't very well known to have the ruler of Israel come from. We see that time and time again throughout the Bible. God loves to use people, to use places, 
that no one else would pay attention to and do something spectacular from there. So we see this is the city that Christ would come from. Notice, secondly, I want to point out a small detail in verse 2. We see his city, but we also see his father. Well, you might ask, where do we see his father? Well, it's God speaking through Micah here. He says, from you shall come forth, what's that next prepositional phrase? For me. He's going to be a ruler. He's going to come forth. He's going to be born, raised, come out of this city to rule. But who is he going to rule for? God says he's going to rule for me. He's going to be for the Father. And this is something we see in this passage that Christ, while he's equal with God, while he is God, he also, as part of his role as the Son of God, submits himself to the Father. He represents God. He makes decisions for the Father. All of us are said to have been made in the image of God. But what did we do? In sin, we corrupted that image. We tarnished it. But in Colossians, Paul says Christ is the image of the invisible God. Christ is the perfect image of God. And he represents God well here on earth. God says this ruler is going to come forth for me. He's going to do what I want him to do. This is part of Christ's role as the son. Notice also his time. His time. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old, from ancient days. This is a some think this is a reference to Christ being from the line of David, the ancient line. But I think it's talking about Christ's pre-existence. That Christ didn't just exist when he was born, but Christ actually existed from before time with the Father. Christ is called the Ancient of Days. And if you notice in Scripture, when that word is used, the Ancient of Days, there's some pretty powerful terminology. In Daniel, it says in verse chapter 7, verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, and his wheels were a burning fire. This ancient of days comes, and he often, when this word is used, he comes in judgment, in power, in might. John talks about his experience with the ancient of days. In verse 12 of chapter 1, Then I turned to see a voice that was speaking to me, and on turning saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were flames of fire. His feet were burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is a picture we get of the ancient of days, of Christ. And we see that this is his time. Christ was 
not just existing when he was born, but Christ existed even before he came to earth. In these two verses, we see a comparison between a very great city to a very insignificant city. In these verses, we see a king who is from earth compared to a king who is from heaven. Don't miss out on how Micah is comparing these two men. Because as we see his background here, we secondly see his leadership in verses 3 and 4. Look with me at his leadership. Verses 3 and 4 is a snapshot of the ministry of Christ as king. If you read, again, the books of First and Second Kings, you see the chaos and the mess that was the kings of Israel and their ministries and their lives. We see here a snapshot of the ministry of Christ as king and just in his person of who he is. Notice with me, first of all, his plan. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Micah starts speaking of this plan of God, Christ's plan as ruler. He, this king, would give his people up. Well, what is that referring to? Well, Israel went into captivity. And like we mentioned last week, not because God was a bully, not because God was mean, but because they deserved it. Because they sinned against God. Because they broke his law. They broke his covenant. And yet in this verse we see the plan of God as well. That he would give them up for a time. Not forever. But they would feel abandoned from God for a specific time. Until when? Until she who is in labor has given birth. Now there's a couple of theories on to what Mike is saying as we look at this verse. Some think it's a reference to Mary. You know, Mary gave birth to Christ. But back up with me at a text we read last week in chapter 4, verse 9. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? The pain seized you like a woman in labor. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in an open country, you shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. The Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. This birthing process, this illustration that Micah uses, signifies the pain that Israel would experience in captivity, but also the blessings that they would experience when Christ comes once again as king. This is his plan for his people. That they would be in captivity for a time, yes. But that eventually they would be restored. Christ has a superior plan for Israel. Now what are these brothers that come back in chapter 5 verse 3? It says, then the rest of his brothers shall return. Well, I think this is the rest of the tribes of Israel coming back into the land at this time. Christ is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The rest of the tribes would return as well back to this land. We see here his plan. Notice, secondly, his shepherding. His shepherding. Verse 4. 
and he, st- and he shall stand and shepherd his flock and the strength of the Lord. He would stand as king, he would become king, and then the shepherding describes his ministry. What does a shepherd do? Well, a shepherd protects the sheep, right? A shepherd guards against the sheep. In scripture, Christ is often called the good shepherd, and that leaves us as the dumb sheep who go our own way. And Christ is called the shepherd of Israel here. It says he will stand and shepherd his people. Well, how does Christ shepherd his people? First, he guides his people. As they make decisions, as they go through life, Christ would guide his people. He would lead them like no one had led them before. A good shepherd must lead his sheep through dangers back to the sheep pen. He must go after the one who's lost and bring him back to the 99, as the parable of the lost sheep says. Christ guides Israel. Christ guides us as well. A shepherd must lead his sheep back to safety. I don't know about you, but I thank God that when I wandered away from the sheep pen, that Christ went and brought me back. That he was the good shepherd and he left the 99 to come after me. He guides his people. Secondly, he defends his people. What does a shepherd do? It protects the sheep from wolves. Why do you need a shepherd? Because there's wolves. There are enemies trying to attack them. Christ defends his people. He defends Israel, as we clearly see in this text. He defends us as well from Satan, from the enemies. He protects us. And then lastly, he cares for his people. Christ cares for his sheep. One of my favorite verses is in John. Before Christ washes his disciples' feet, it says he loved them to the end. Christ cares for his sheep. He cares for Israel as the good shepherd. And he cares for us as well. We see his shepherding. Notice his strength as well. He shall stand and shepherd his people, his flock, in the strength of the Lord. Where does Christ's strength come from? It comes from God. His strength would come from God. All these other kings and rulers, they dwelled on their own wealth and power and riches and animals and military might. Christ would find his strength in the Lord. I mentioned earlier, Christ is equal with God. Why does he need to find his strength in the Lord? He submits himself to the Father. It's not that Christ is any less in this aspect, but rather that Christ enables people through the strength of the Lord to survive. Don't think that Christ wasn't strong enough to take on the burden of his people, but it rather refers to the fact that Israel would rely on the Lord's strength once again. We see Israel throughout history, they were relying on themselves, on their own kings, and now they would rely on Christ. Christ, his strength would come from the Lord. Notice with me his majesty. His majesty. The Hebrew word means his impressiveness. Micah said he will stand and shepherd his people in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty 
of the name of the Lord our God. Majesty doesn't just refer to what Christ does, but also how he does it. You know, there's a big difference between someone who just does something to do it and someone who does something well. A couple years ago, I listened to some teens who did something called humorous interpretation. They read a speech and they would act it out for us. It was like a monologue. And some of those teens, they didn't have a lot of dramatic flair. They just kind of read it. And then others of those teens, the ones who won, they were all over the place. <clears throat> they were crazy. They were very dramatic in how they spoke. Christ would shepherd his people in majesty. It defines what he does. Notice also his protection. They would dwell secure. For now he will be great to the ends of the earth. Christ, as a, sheep, as a shepherd, protects his sheep. He protects his people during this time. Christ protects Israel. He protects us as well. We see that during this time when Christ comes and reunifies his people, they would dwell secure. They would be safe. Notice lastly, his greatness. And he shall be great to the ends of the earth. What Christ does as king, it would be greater than all the other kings of Israel. The word now locates his greatness to this time, but it defines just the ministry of Christ here. He would be a better king. So we consider the leadership of Christ this morning. I want to reiterate that Christ is better than all worldly substitutes. He's better than all the things that we try to replace him with. In your plans, when life catches you off guard, when you don't know where to turn, Christ is better than all the other things that you turn to. The internet, your friends, the world. Christ has a better plan for you. Christ is a better shepherd than anyone else you turn to when you need comfort, care, guidance, leadership. Christ is better than anything else we could replace him with. When you're having a bad day, when you need someone to encourage you, Christ is better than Dr. Phil. He's better than anyone else who could try to give you advice. Your friends, books you read. In the moments that your life falls apart, Christ is better. He's better than all those other things you turn to. Friends, the majesty of Christ is better. Christ's majesty, his greatness, the way he does things, it's better than anything else we could replace him with in our life. Christ is a better person to worship. Those things that you have in your hearts, those idols in your life, those people, those possessions, money, fame, satisfaction, whatever it is for you, Christ is a better king to worship. He's more majestic. The text says that he's great, and his greatness will be known to the ends of the earth. Christ, as a shepherd, protects you, comforts you, guides you. Christ's leadership is better than anything else. Christ's leadership of our church is better than anything I could come up with on my own. 
He is the head of the church. If you're wondering what your purpose is in life, Christ gives you a better purpose than anything you could come up with. If you're wondering what your purpose is in life, it's to know Christ and to make him known. To make his greatness known to the end of the earth. His leadership is better. Lastly, notice with me in verse 5, his peace. Maybe my favorite part of the whole text. And he shall be their peace. And he shall be their peace. He gives them this promise of peace here in verse 5. That no matter what happens in their life, that Christ would give them peace. The word that he uses for peace is shalom. It means completeness, wholeness. The Hebrew word for worry means to be picked to pieces or pulled apart. Worry pulls you apart while peace makes you complete and makes you whole. Coming off of verses 3 through 4, we've seen Christ's leadership over his people. We see all these different aspects of Christ and who he is, his character. But the Lord, Mike, the Lord through Micah, decides to finally dwell on the peace that Christ gives. This absence of worry. It's the final description of his kingship. In Isaiah 9, 6, Christ is called the Prince of Peace. Christ gives his people peace. We see this promised in verse 5. And then we see it play out in an example in the last of the two verses. Christ shall be their peace when the Assyrian comes into their lands. When enemies come and they try to overtake Israel, Assyria, like I've said, would be the biggest enemy that they would face. In the hardest portions of their life, Christ would be their peace. We get this picture of an enemy invading, pillaging, plundering. Assyria was a pretty nasty and vile nation to deal with. When all this happens, when Assyria is invading Israel, the peace of Christ would sustain him. It says, then we will raise seven shepherds and eight princes of men. Israel would be able to defend against the Assyrian army that would be coming. Now you might be wondering, what is this phrase that he uses here? These seven shepherds and eight princes of men. Are these like superheroes or something that Micah is giving for us? Well, I don't think so. I rather think they stand as examples that God would raise up enough people, enough people to defend Israel. The word he uses for seven or eight actually means it could be seven or eight, however many is necessary to face the imposing army. As the Assyrians come, they would need shepherds, they would need princes, people to defend against them. We see that's exactly what happens. It says in verse 6, They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword. They would defend Israel. They would push the Assyrian army that was great, that was numerous. They would push them back all the way to their land. Then it makes a mention in the next phrase, in the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Nimrod was an ancient name for either Assyria or Babylon. They would drive the enemy all the way back to their 
country. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads upon our borders. Christ would be Israel's peace. He would defend them when they were in trouble. Remember a couple weeks ago as we talked about this kingdom, it would be such a great and glorious time that people would just be sitting under their trees, under their fig trees, enjoying their fruit, not worried about anyone attacking them. Christ promises this peace to his people, that as people attack, he would defend them. He would push them back. Israel enjoyed this victory over Assyria. If you read the book of Isaiah, if you read even in the books of First and Second Kings, you see that God saved Israel from her enemy. Christ is a better king for Israel than all other kings that they could come up with. Christ is a better leader. He's a better ruler for us as well. As I said earlier, he's better than all worldly substitutes. In our lives, we try to replace Christ with things that really don't matter. If you look at the history of Israel, God would bless them, he would rescue them, and then they would turn back to their sin. We see a lot of people in our world today looking to things, people, possessions for satisfaction in life. But Christ is better than all of those things. So as we conclude this morning, what do we do with Christ? If Christ is a better king, if he's a better leader in our lives, then how do we respond to him? Well, first of all, we believe Christ. If you've never trusted Christ this morning, I've mentioned a lot of great aspects of his leadership for Israel, his care for our lives. But what did Christ do in our lives that was the most significant Well, Christ came to earth. And you know what? Christ didn't come in greatness like the text has been saying, but he came in humility. He took on our human flesh. The back pain, the emotional trauma that we experience, the physical pain, suffering, weeping, death, all those things Christ experienced just like we do. And Christ lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins so that we can know him and have a relationship with him. How do we respond to Christ? We believe in Christ, that he is who he says he is, that he is the perfect son of God. We secondly trust Christ for salvation. We believe the gospel. If you want this king to be your king, if you want his leadership in your life, if you want a relationship with him, then friends, trust Christ. He's better than all the other worldly substitutes that you could have, those things that you think are going to make your life happier. Christ is better. We trust Christ in salvation. And then believers, if you're here this morning and you believe in Jesus Christ, you know him as your savior, as I believe many of you do, trust Christ in the rest of your life as well. He's not just sufficient for salvation. He's sufficient for everything else as well in your job, in your marriage, for this church. You want to know what's going to make our church dynamic and thriving. If you want to know what's going to revive our churches, our people, it is Christ. We trust Christ with our church. We trust Christ with our lives. 
that family member that you have that you just want to understand the gospel, but you don't know if they ever will, and you've prayed and you've prayed for them to receive Christ. Will you trust Christ for that too? That Christ will enable them to believe that they will see the wickedness of their own sin and be drawn to the gospel. If Christ is this great leader, then thirdly, we should obey Christ. When Christ gives the great commission in Matthew 28, he says, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. If we want Christ to be our leader, if we want Christ to be supreme in our lives, then we should obey Christ, his word. What in your life has Christ told you to do that you don't really want to do? those areas of sin that you know you need to confess. Will you obey Christ in those areas as well? And then lastly, we worship Christ. Not just in song, not just in words, but in actions. As Paul says in Romans 12, we give our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. We make our lives a sacrifice and offering to Christ. We've seen in this text in Micah, a person in Jesus who is far better and superior than all other things. He'd be a better king for Israel. And friends, he's better than anything else we try to replace him with. But you may be here this morning and you may be singing the songs with us. You may be going through the motions of church. But you truly worship something else in your heart. You've put something else as the center of your desires. As the thing that you feed with your desires friends worship christ he's far better than any of those other things that we could replace him with israel would have to wait another couple hundred years before christ would even come before he would be born in bethlehem before he would die for our sins we await for christ to come as well we await his second coming when Christ comes and he rules and reigns here on the earth. But we don't have to wait to trust Christ today. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you can believe in him today. If you have an area of your life, you need to surrender to the lordship and majesty of Christ. You can do that today as well. And I promise you he'll be better than anything else we could replace him with. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the goodness of who your son is in Jesus Christ. I confess, God, that we don't always worship Christ as we should. Sometimes we get it wrong. God, help us to respond according to your word. I pray that if there's people here today that do not know Christ as your Savior, as their Savior, that you would save them, Lord. Pray that you would help us all to examine our lives, even if we're believers here, that you would help us to respond as you would have us. In Jesus' name, amen.